Today we continue a series of discussions about the basics of Marxism, a method for understanding and changing the world used by organizers, activists, scholars, and many of the great revolutionaries in modern history. Our topic for this week is the corporate-owned media. The majority of the media in the United States is owned now by five giant corporations, proving once again that capitalism will try to turn anything, even information, into a source of profit. What does this tell us about the so-called free press? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for our regular weekly segment every Wednesday where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program you too can and should become a patron if you appreciate listening to this show richard wolf is the co-founder of the organization democracy at work he's the author of many books the latest being the sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com, and that's spelled R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. We really appreciate our conversations where we're talking about the news of the day, but we're putting it into a particular context, which is the framework of Marxist concepts, Marxist definitions, Marxist categories. Karl Marx actually wrote about the political economy of the media a long time ago, back in, you know, more than 160 years ago. His writings, which seem to be timely at that moment in history, in fact, are still timely. What's changed, though, is the level of media consolidation. Again, Marx made the point famously quoted and sometimes misquoted, but famously quoted. He said, in essence, paraphrasing, the ideas of any society are the ideas of its ruling class. Now, of course, back in the early part of the 19th century or even earlier, there weren't massive media technology corporations shaping public opinion. The priest and the clergy and the schools and perhaps the patriarchs in rural villages had to play that function. But today we do live in the modern world where people think that we are well-informed. They think we have access to media and access to a variety of opinions. We live in the free press. It's not a state-owned media. The government doesn't tell the media, apparently, or according to this story, what to say. In 1983, Richard, there were 
50 dominant media corporations, not 50 in total, but dominant media corporations. Today, there are five. These five conglomerates own about 90% of the media in the United States, including newspapers, magazines, book publishers, motion picture studios, and radio and television stations. As of 2020, the five media giants are AT&T. They own Time Warner, CNN, HBO. Then there's Comcast that owns NBC Universal, Telemundo Universal Pictures. Then there's Disney. That's number three. They have ABC, ESPN, Pixar, Marvel Studios, News Corp is fourth. That owns Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Post. And number five, Viacom, CBS, which owns CBS, Paramount Pictures, and others. Anyway, 1983, that was you know 38 years ago. 50 dominant media corporations, today five. Richard Wolf, help the audience understand what's going on and why this is, in fact, not an accidental process. No, you see this process all throughout capitalism. If you go back about the same amount of time, early the 20th century, we had 50 different companies making automobiles. Now we have what everybody knows, basically two left here in the United States, Ford and General Motors. Many become few. That's the story in the computer industry. That's the story in the cigarette industry. It's just, I mean, literally across the board. But what people don't remember when they hear the celebrations of competition is that competition is a process in which not only does the more profitable business succeed at the expense of the less, but typically the company that can't win in the process of competition goes out of business. Its equipment is purchased by the company that did win. The people who lose their jobs in the company that lost the competition often move over and go to work for the company that expands because it did win the competition. Or to say the same thing in simple language, many become few. The winners in competition eat the losers, absorb them. And that's how many become a few. And this has happened in industry after industry. Nobody should be particularly surprised that it happens in the media industry as well. If you didn't want that to happen, if you wanted there to be, honestly, many, many different competing media, you could not let capitalism be the system that operates your media. Because unless you're stupid or don't pay attention to history, you know what has happened to virtually every other industry. There are a few exceptions, but the dominant pattern is that many become few, and that has happened to the media industry as well. Had we had a serious commitment not to have our media in the hands of five monster companies, we would have had to say, okay, media cannot be allowed to be run by capitalists. You know, it's a little bit like saying we want there to be public schools. We want our different populations to have their children know and learn about each other by going to a neighborhood public school. Of course, that presumes that the neighborhood is diverse, and that wasn't always the case 
to say it politely, but the idea is you make education something that isn't a profit-making enterprise in the capitalist mode because you don't want it to become something dominated by three big educational companies, which is what would have happened. Or likewise, if you want to have public parks in your community and you want them there in each of the neighborhoods so there's a place to walk your dog or have a picnic with your family, then you don't have parks run as capitalist enterprises because if you did, then you'd have again many parks pretty soon consolidated through a competition about the park into a handful who could then dictate what the parks are like. So that's the first thing. The second thing, I would like directly to confront the notion that we have a free press. We don't, and we never did. And let me explain what that means. If the press were genuinely free, in the way that most people mean that word, we would have to be able to say that it is the normal thing for the people producing a newspaper or a radio show or a television program or a motion picture to say whatever it is they think is the truth about the society they live in without fear of censorship or retribution or punishment. And to say that about our media, again, if you do, it means you're not paying attention or that you are an ideologue, you're not interested in what the truth is. And here's the simplest example. One of the most central issues of the last century has been the so-called struggle between capitalism and socialism. Okay, if you had a free press, you would be able, throughout the last hundred years, to have the press present the pros and cons of each of those systems from the people who feel pro or con about them. So we would have programs on the strengths and weaknesses of capitalism and the strengths and weaknesses of socialism. And we would have had critics of capitalism as able to stand up and speak as critics of socialism. We've had nothing of the sort, and there's no mystery about that. Very, very few critics of capitalism have been able to get on the airwaves at all. And when they have gotten into the media, it's usually to be attacked, to be dismissed, and it is infinitely less frequent than the people who are critical of socialism and who celebrate capitalism. And we can't be surprised. Are we really going to wonder that companies that are themselves capitalists are not going to be interested in featuring the criticisms of what they are? Of course not. They use their ownership and their power to make sure that the media they own and operate are boosters for them, are supporters of the system they exemplify. They are not a reliable basis for having an open, honest discussion on something as central as the issue of capitalism versus socialism. So we don't have a free press, or as somebody once said with a tongue-in-cheek, we only have a free press for those who have the money to buy one. For them, they can go out and buy a piece of 
journalism or journalistic enterprise and make it do what they want. And we know where the preponderance of wealth is in this country. It's in the hands of capitalists who have always used the media to support what they do. But there's another sense in which we don't have a free press. The government in this country is extremely powerful. Most people know that. And to think that the people who run this government are going to hesitate to use the power that they have, the power to issue licenses, which people in the media business need to get from the government, to get bandwidth, to get all kinds of necessities for their businesses, they need the government's support. They need the government's approval. They need the government's permission. They need the government to give them the news. They need the government to protect them in terms of copyrights, in terms of patents. I could go on. But it would be foolhardy for a profit-making media enterprise to offend the government upon which they depend. Oh, sure, from time to time, a criticism here, a criticism there. But you are not going to, if I can use the metaphor, bite the hand that you hope and need to feed you. And therefore, the notion that this media is a viable way to get the dirt on the government, I mean, that's just silly. The closest you get is the effort of media that like Republicans to be a bit more critical of Democrats and vice versa. But to think that we have a free press because Democrats criticize Republicans and vice versa means you're not aware that there's a vast array of things upon which Republicans and Democrats agree, and you're not going to see any criticism of those. And the simplest example are the foreign adventures of the United States. The media in this country suddenly lose most of their critical capability, what little they have, the minute the United States is engaged in some sort of struggle around the world. And in the early phases of these struggles, wars, actions of various kinds, the media, the mass media, the mainstream mass media, those five companies you mentioned, their reports are literally identical, often the same sentences as if they were reading from the same Pentagon press release. They're not going to be critical. They are patriotic in the narrow sense of the term. So no, a real free press would require what? Well, it would require the government, just like public education required the government, public parks required the government. If you want to have a genuinely open so-called marketplace of ideas, well, then the government is the only way to guarantee that the full range of opinions is articulated, including those that are critical of the government, and that there's some popular way that the mass of people can intervene if and when the government abuses its obligation to present all points of view. But in the kind of media we have, there's no way to do that because it's quote-unquote private enterprise, private property. So the only thing you can do if you don't like what is being dished out to you in the newspaper or in the TV show or in the movie is go to 
another one. But the other ones are all the same. Which of those five companies you listed, you subscribe to, that's not going to give you a fundamentally different perspective. You're going to be shocked if you ever make that experiment to find out just how similar one to the other is. This kind of movie flies in in the case of one company, they immediately copy it in all the other companies. And that's true of TV programs, that's true of podcast series, that's true of everything else. Because money looks for what is profitable and then copies that. That's what it has always done. That's how capitalism works. Let me conclude with an example from another country where this is at least tried. My family is French. I spend a lot of time in France. I speak French and have since I've been a child. If you go to France and you turn on the television on a Sunday morning, they have programs. And the political programs are like our Meet the Press or stories like that. But the thing that will shock you if you go to France and if you're there on a Sunday and you flick on the TV One week, the guest will be the head of the conservative right-wing political party. For example, Marina Le Pen currently. But at another time, you are just as likely, just as frequently, going to look at the television and see the head of the Communist Party or the head of the Socialist Party. In other words, the government is obligated to give equal time and exposure to all the different political persuasions in France at any time. And there is a lot of public outcry if they depart from that obligation. Does that guarantee a free press? No, of course not. Are there subtle and not so subtle ways still to tilt it? Yes, France is not the ideal. It's not the final solution to anything. But It shows you that there can be a commitment not to exclude significant perspectives from the public awareness. Let me give you another example. In Germany, and I'm choosing countries that Americans know to be allies of the United States. In Germany, here's an interesting reality. Here's how the government works. For any political party, that gets 5% of the vote, the government will give to that party a subsidy, very large subsidy, millions of euros, because of the following commitment to democracy, that's how the Germans describe it. If you can get 5% of the people to vote for you, then you represent a perspective that is important in the country of Germany, and you have the right to make sure it is distributed. Yes, you will get on the TV, much of the TV shaped by government law, but they will also give you money to produce media that articulate your perspective. They do that to every one of the political parties that get more than 5% of the vote. And how much do they give them? They give them in proportion to the votes they get. Is that an ideal solution? Of course not. But it is a major step 
So that, for example, the left party in Germany, Die Linke it's called, the left party in Germany, which has gotten more than 5% of the vote in quite a few of the recent elections, gets a subsidy from the German government to make its perspective on what's going on in Germany something that mass media are provided with. And they can make movies and they can hold conferences and they get covered by the governmental apparatuses and so forth. In other words, there's all kinds of steps you can take. The United States is remarkable in the lack of a freedom for the people of this country to hear the different perspectives. A lack of freedom that the French in their way and the Germans in their way refuse to replicate in the name of both democracy and a free press. Richard, I'm looking at the number of socialist newspapers and periodicals that existed at different points inside the United States. And these were the newspapers that were advocating for workers' rights, for women's rights, for the rights of African-American populations, for immigrant rights, the things that don't get covered in the mainstream media. And when I talk about the mainstream media, none of it, there are no TV stations that are owned by workers. There are no main TV stations that are owned by socialists. And even though the African-American population is, you know, about 50 million people in the United States, now with all this media consolidation, the number of TV stations owned by black people is 0.9%, less than 1%. That means it's 99% owned by not only wealthy people, but they're also wealthy white people for the main. Between 1900 and 1920, there were 380 newspapers and periodicals affiliated with just the Socialist Party. That's between 1900 and 1920. In the 1920s and the 1930s, there was a very vibrant Marxist press that was organized by other socialist groups or by the Communist Party USA. Of course, the Communist Party USA had a daily newspaper with a sports section. It was called the Daily Worker. And then when you think about what's happened over the same time period that we're talking about this media consolidation with these different dominant capitalist media outlets, there were 50 of them in 1983, there are five today. During this entire period, there were also other major political developments like the collapse of the Soviet Union, which in turn largely because the so-called communist movement, as it was self-described, was conflated with the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union imploded or collapsed, a great part of the world communist movement also collapsed, which also meant that their newspapers collapsed. So in all of the countries of the world, almost every country, wherever there was a capitalist media, there was also a socialist media or a communist media. In other words, there was an alternative media where even if it was hard to access, it still existed. Now, our show is called The Socialist Program. Your website at rdwolf.com. We're in the process of almost, in a way, I would say starting over, reviving the resources for socialism as the interest in socialism grows. But 
when we think about how anti-socialism or anti-communism became the unofficial religion of the country, it was a combination of repression. It was a combination where people lost their jobs. People had to self-censor because they didn't want to have their careers ended. Leaders, even in your city council in New York, like Ben Davis, were sent to prison for pretty long stretches for threatening to overthrow the United States, really not because they were, but because he had Marxist ideas. When you think about the sort of filtering of information, news, and analysis in a way where socialism or a socialist media was non-existent, we can't sort of overstate the significance that had in terms of shifting and changing consciousness. I'm saying this because, as you said, the mainstream media, we shouldn't expect the mainstream media to be friendly to socialism or even curious about socialism, only hostile to socialism because of the sort of enduring class struggle where, as Marx said, the ideas of any society are the ideas of its ruling class. In this case, the capitalists don't want people to learn about socialism because if they do, it's pretty contagious. It kind of makes sense. Anyway, just talk about the impact of media consolidation in this realm as well, if you would. Sure. Again, I'm going to use some examples from Europe. I've mentioned this before in our conversations. In almost all European countries, or certainly in most of them, every election there are socialists, communists, and other leftists running for office. It's considered natural, normal, in no way remarkable. In many elections, socialists, communists, and others are elected. I like to remind people these days, because I know so many of your listeners probably don't know this, that the current government of Portugal, which was voted into office back in 2016 and was resoundingly re-elected in 2020, is a coalition of three parties. The largest member of the coalition governing Portugal is the Portuguese Socialist Party. The second partner of the Socialist is the Portuguese Communist Party. And the third member of the coalition is the Portuguese Green Party. That's who runs Portugal. And if you didn't know that, that illustrates the point we're making. This is not something that Americans are told about. They're not told why they won the election. They're not told why they won re-election. They're not told what is the significance that they were running on a platform to refuse austerity in the wake of the 2008 collapse of global capitalism. They're not asking or answering the question, why would the good people of Portugal be as committed to the left as obviously they are in view of what I've just told you. And similar things could be said about Italy or Spain or Scandinavia or France or Germany and so on. These are realities. If you shut down the left-wing media, if you make it either financially or ideologically impossible for them to function, you cut off a source of ideas. Again, let me give an example this time from France. France has a daily newspaper. It's called Humanity in French, L'Humanité, which is a publication of the French Communist Party. It's on the newsstand everywhere in France every day. 
many French people, when they kind of take the time to read the paper, will go and buy the conservative daily paper, Figaro is its name, the middle of the road to center left, let's call it, the major, the biggest paper in France is called Le Monde, which in English is the world. And then there's L'Humanité, across the country, the communist paper. And they read that to see what the different perspectives are. In the United States, completely different. You go to the newsstand, you can pick whatever local paper you want, and you're going to get the same analysis of most of the basic questions of the day. The Daily News, the, the Post here in New York City, the New York Times, they don't give you fundamentally different perspectives the way they do in France. And that's because in that country, a culture has developed. Even people who aren't socialists want the socialist perspective to be out there because they think their country will go better if the different perspectives can make the arguments they have to make point to the flaws in the system they're concerned about, mobilize movements to improve the society, and so on. And I think that in the United States, there has been a tendency to think that because the ruling five big companies in the media make their decisions about what's good for them, that we all ought to go along as if somehow by magic, What's good for them is good for us, but it isn't, and that has to be faced. What's good for us is knowing what the different perspectives are, getting really different ways of thinking about what's important and happening in the world. That is not the objective of those five companies, as each of them will tell us profit is their bottom line. Profit is what they're in business to achieve. They're going to do what's best for their profit. That's what they're paid to do. That's what their shareholders demand they do, and they do it. And only the most naive person would imagine that what's most profitable for those five companies ought to be dictating what it is we get to hear and see. As long as you do that, calling yourself a free press is, and I'll be as polite as I know how, very disingenuous. Professor Wolf, final point, and I, I want to get your opinion, your thoughts on this. In terms of the centrality in the significance of mainstream media exposure. In 2015, in the fall, Bernie Sanders started his sort of unlikely quest to win the Democratic nomination when it was clear that the DNC leadership had already chosen Hillary Clinton. She was essentially coronated, or they thought so. And he started going out on the campaign trail. He started speaking to young audiences. And to the great shock of the very disturbed Democratic Party establishment, lots of young people started coming out and cheering for Bernie Sanders, who almost no one knew about in the country. He had been in the Congress as an independent socialist, but caucusing with the Democrats. This came after the Occupy movement and after Black Lives Matter movement. There was a lot of youthful discontent. It came after the 2007-8 financial crisis. And so the Democrats were concerned. So he debated, it was October 2015, 
He was on a CNN debate. So mainstream media, it was kind of like the first time in that campaign year for the 2016 election. And Anderson Cooper was the host for CNN. And I think he was supposed to deliver the knockout blow to Bernie Sanders. So in his very first question, very first question, Anderson Cooper says, Senator Sanders, a Gallup poll says half the country would not put a socialist in the White House. You call yourself a democratic socialist. How can any kind of socialist win a general election in the United States? To which Bernie Sanders responded, well, we're going to win because first we're going to explain what democratic socialism is. And what democratic socialism is about is saying that it's immoral and wrong that the top one-tenth of 1% in this country own almost 90%, own almost as much wealth as the bottom 90%. That is wrong today in a rigged economy. 57% of all new income is going to the top 1%. That when you look around the world, you see every other major country providing healthcare to all people as a right, except the United States. You see every other major country saying to moms, that when you have a baby, we're not going to separate you from your newborn baby because we are going to have medical and family paid leave like every other country on earth. Those are some of the principles I believe in. Now, that was Anderson Cooper on mainstream media for the first time, nationally televised debate, red baiting Bernie Sanders and Sanders giving this very basic explanation of socialism and because he was on mainstream media, in the next three hours after that question was posed, Bernie Sanders' campaign received millions of dollars of donations from small donors, meaning working class and young people. And it just showed the power of exposure and also why you can see the capitalist media doesn't want to have, well, Bernie Sanders is sort of a mainstream socialist, but a lot of socialists who can say very convincing and persuasive things like yourself, who have a radical message, but one that can be well-received and if given media exposure would be well-received, why it's considered so dangerous to have socialists in mainstream media. Well, you know, just speaking about my own personal experience, I have done more public speaking in the last five years than in the previous 40 and that's not because I've changed anything I say. And that's good news. It's because the audience has developed. It's exactly what you're pointing out. None of these systems of closing out free speech by using five companies who are in the business of making money to decide what you do and don't see, to decide who gets the career in journalism to move up the ladder because they mouth off what the owners want to hear and who gets shunted off to another career because they don't do that. None of those things are forever and none of those things are impregnable. Dictatorships are overthrown. Lack of freedom gives way if people are willing to fight to get it. We could get a free press. The reason I gave the examples of France and Germany, far from a free press they are, but they are closer than we are. They show steps we could take if we cared enough. And the irony is your story is exactly that. It's showing that human beings 
in this country are smart enough to understand how long it took for someone like Bernie to be courageous enough to put himself up as a socialist, not to shrink from these statements, not to slink away feeling there was no chance. There is a chance because there always is, because the people who run the society make lots of mistakes, misjudge as they did indeed Bernie. And I think we're seeing now that the very conversation we're having is itself evidence that the demand for really an open and genuinely free press is beginning to show itself in the support you get for your work and the audience building for mine. It is an amazing, and I don't mind admitting, a very heady experience to see the things we've been trying to say for some time suddenly capture the spirit of our times. And I do believe those in charge, they're beginning to get the message. And that's why you're seeing the more right-wing among them beginning to shift around to focus their attack on the left in the hopes that somehow they can mobilize the reaction to the growth of a demand for the kind of media freedom we haven't had for a very long time. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolf.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back Tuesday. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.